So this is your first time in 20-somethings. Um, one of the key things to know about just the way a normal Thursday night works is that you're not just going to listen to me teach for an hour or something straight. Um, I'll, I'll teach for a, a significant portion, but part of our time together is actually table talk discussion. And so we're going to actually begin our time together with a question to talk about at the table just to get us primed. And it's this. What is the most awkward conversation you've ever had? What is the most awkward conversation you've ever had? I'm watching people's faces get red right now. Huh? Uh, well, d- to be determined. We'll see. That's the, if you say it out loud, it's got to be PG. It's got to be PG. So talk at your table for a second. Most awkward conversation you've ever had. Make sure you get to know the people's names at your tables. And then we will dive into our message. Probably, probably the most awkward conversation I've ever had, or it's up there, uh, that I feel comfortable sharing, um, is uh, I was in high school and went to this party, not, not one of those parties, but uh, went to a party. And um, basically I show up and I walk in the room and I kid you not, the TV is turned all the way up. And there's some movie on and without thinking I said, is somebody deaf in here? And uh, sure enough, there was. There was a young lady who was deaf, but she wasn't facing me, so she had no idea I said that comment. But her friend, so frustrated at my comment, taps her on the shoulder and brings her over and tells her what I said. And that, you know, pursuing conversation was like, I just want to get out of there. I want to die right there. It was awful. Um, for many of us, uh, you know, we laugh at awkward conversations, but if we're honest, some of the most awkward conversations we have or we imagine relate to specific issues. And if you imagine the cliche of what you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, the two main topics are religion and politics. And uh, tonight, we're going to break all those rules and we're going to talk about religion and politics. So just kind of buckle up a little bit. I promise uh, there will be some redeeming thoughts here, but um, here's my ask of you as we dive into our passage and continue on the series, is wherever you're at in the political spectrum, I would just ask you to keep your mind and heart open a little bit. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest this, maybe a little bit pointed. If something kind of stings a little bit, the shoe seems to fit, kind of reflect on that a little bit. So that's my warning for what we're about to say. Um, I promise we're not going to go like in the ring and anything too bad like that. But I just want to set it up to allow yourselves to be open to a conversation because, as I think you'll see, I, I think the way Christians engage in politics is one of the most pressing issues of our day, and we're not going to talk about specific issues, but how we actually just engage in general. So that's that's kind of where we're going tonight, but a little bit of context. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn or tap with me to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to give you kind of uh, just a little backdrop of where we've been at. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. And essentially, we've been going through the book of First Peter this semester. Um, you may notice, if you look around the room, that there's a ton of people with kind of these navy blue uh, little booklets. If you don't have one, be sure to grab one after service. We, we think it's important that we actually engage with Scripture. We, we journal together. And uh, one of the reasons that will be important is because part of what we're going to talk about tonight will set up next week's lesson. Um, but we, we've, we've really focused on this idea of, one, that... This world is not our home. Um, doesn't mean that we're disengaged with this world, but we need to remember that our true home is in another world. It, it is with the Lord. It is in a, the new heavens and the new earth. And then Stana also just gave us this amazing message about what it means that we are God's beloved. 
and that we are his chosen people and, and what that looks like as we fight shame and different things. And all of those will come up at, at some measure tonight. And so uh, for us to begin, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to read our passage together, verse 11 through 17, and then we'll say some introductory words and kind of uh, focus on a particular part of the passage. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So let me say just a few words, just kind of uh, to to make a few points with the passage, and then we're going to kind of focus on one particular element of it. Um, just to kind of understand some basic points. So first would be this. Along with Romans uh, 13, verses 1 to 7, this passage tonight is one of the most fundamental biblical passages on the Christian's engagement with the government and how we view governmental authority. Um, So it's pretty significant. And one of the things I would encourage you to do, especially if you're newer with us, would be um, go back and listen to a message uh, we did, it's going to be like early November, November 5th or 6th, 2020. It's called The Most Political Statement Ever Made. That message was preached on a little bit on our passage tonight, but mostly on Romans 13, 1 to 7. And it's going to give you a much fuller understanding of the Bible's understanding of the government. Um, we preached that message the Thursday after the 2020 presidential election. We don't usually do stuff like this, but just there was so much tension we felt like we need to just take a moment to have a biblical view of the government. And so uh, we're not going to have time to focus in on all of what the Bible has to say here, but if you go and listen to that message, we'll post it in the group me after. Um, that'll give you a much better understanding of some of the dynamics at play. Um, but let's just kind of get some 30,000 foot view, just a few points about what the Bible says about the government. Um, if we were to give just a basic biblical definition of what the government is, we would say this. The government is a temporary, provisional organization set up by God through humanity in order to bring justice and promote human flourishing. I'll read that one more time. and You don't have to memorize any of this for the rest of the message tonight to make sense, but I think it's helpful. Government is a temporary, provisional organization set up by God through humanity in order to bring justice and promote human flourishing. And we fleshed that out way more in that message I was referring to earlier. Um, Let me just make another note here. You'll notice here uh, later in the passage where it says, uh, submit to human authorities and honor the emperor as supreme. Um, There could be lots of questions that come to your mind about what does this submission look like? And one thing I will say is this is not a blanket submission. Um, it's key to know that if you were living in Germany in the 1940s and you were instructed by a Nazi officer to put down a Jew, you would not want to obey that message. 
It's not saying you submit in cases like that. It's not saying you submit if the government tells you you cannot worship the triune God. So it's not talking about submission in all cases. But, but, it is talking about submission in more cases than I think our American sensibilities often want to give credit to. Um, we kind of, even in just our roots and in, in our genes, we're, we're kind of this rebellious nation. And there's something beautiful about that in many ways, but if we're not careful, there can be something unbiblical too. If our first instinct is never to submit to authority, that's not biblical either. Um, so what we need to see that there are times where there, there's a call for civil disobedience. Read the book of Acts. Uh, read Daniel. See how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to Nebuchadnezzar. Those are all genuine and legitimate times of civil disobedience where it would be sinful to submit to authorities. But we are called to submit to the governments that God has put up before us I, you know, the, the vast majority of the time. And Peter's assuming that here. He's assuming the few cases of civil disobedience, and he's encouraging people to submit. So while, again, you're not, you're not meant to submit if you're, you're being asked to deny worship to God, uh, this, this is not to give you an out so you can fiddle with your taxes just because you don't like the current presidential regime. You know? So... Our submission is more all-encompassing than we might want to give off. Um, Jesus gives us a masterful understanding of our relation to the government in the Gospel of Mark. And actually, I want you to turn with me there. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to look at just a beautiful example from Jesus about our relation to the authorities and what it looks like to submit to authorities. So Mark chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. We can go to verse 17. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. We'll go to verse 17. <clears throat> it says this. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. <clears throat> when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. But you teach the way of God truthfully. And then here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <clears throat> Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me denarius to look at. And they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? And he asked them. They said, Caesar's. Jesus told them. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed. Now think for a second what's going on there. You have these guys that are trying to trap Jesus, because there's a sense in which they knew if he said um, that, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, they can immediately nail him for trying to evade Caesar's authority. They can punish him. And yet Jesus, in a very shrewd way, really kind of dodges their objection and gets to the deeper heart of everything. He says, you know what? This coin has got Caesar's image on it. You can see his picture. Yep, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yep, pay your taxes. But, more fundamentally, give to God what is his. And I think if there were kind of a shrewd uh, observer there, they might ask the question, okay, you know, we know what is Caesar's because his image, we can see his image on it. But what is God's? To which Jesus would respond, 
whose image is on you? See what he's saying? Whose image is on you? We are all made in God's image. And so everything about us, all of who we are, is meant to be given to him as a sacrifice. It is his. It is his domain. So yes, submit to human authorities, but God is our ultimate authority. And we all submit to him. We are made in his image. And 1 Peter 2 will affirm this even more particularly about Christians when it says this. Verses 9 to 10. It says... But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, we are to give to God what is God's. We are to submit to the authorities of government and human institutions that God has set up around us. So then what does it look like more specifically as Christians who are God's people to engage in politics? So this, this is kind of the main thing we're going to focus on tonight because I think it's so important in our day and age. And the first thing I think we need to think about is we consider, okay, how do we as Christians engage in politics? What does that look like to do it biblically? Is to consider the fact that in our day and age, politics has now become like a religion. Politics has now become like a religion. And if you don't believe me, just think about it this way. Most religions have creeds, statements of belief, basic facts that you have to believe to adhere to that religion. They require some sort of action. And uh, there's also heresy, so that if you deny certain things, you are out. And punishment could be due. Um, Oftentimes they also have worship where people get very excited and there's lots of fervor surrounding a movement. Now think about politics. There are absolutely creeds. There are basic things you have to believe if you hold certain political views. There are certain heresies that if you believe a certain thing, you are canceled, you are out. And there's even worship. We may not think of it this way, but if you were to go to a, a national party rally, that feels like a worship event at this point. I mean, there were pictures in the news just the other day of people raising their hands that looked like a worship concert, except it was a politician speaking. I mean, politics has become like a religion. And if you think about it, part of this makes sense because if you, were, if you do any kind of sociological study, I realize most people are not that nerdy, but uh, I enjoy that kind of stuff, and you can see the, the decline in religious involvement over the years, particularly the last couple hundred years. And what's interesting about that is when... When people's religious involvement declines, even if they were not serious believers, they just kind of went because it was the social thing to do and it was what you did in Mayberry, um, they still found community there. They still found purpose in their religious communities. But when, that, when those religious communities don't exist for them anymore, there's a void, and they need to go somewhere else to find meaning, to find community, to find something that feels bigger than themselves they can be a part of, and they turn to politics. It becomes like a religion for them. I thought it was so interesting. There was this article by uh, just a super insightful young guy. I say young, he's older than me, but um, named Samuel James. And he was talking about the way Wikipedia articles have changed over the years. You know, for, for many of us, Wikipedia is kind of like the new encyclopedia. Uh, it's, it's the new dictionary in many ways, where if we, if we want to look something up about someone, we go to Wikipedia. And so in many ways, what Wikipedia posts and how they order their content shapes people more broadly. 
And what's interesting is, he said, if you look at the way Wikipedia profiles have changed, they now almost always include someone's political views. Which is interesting because for most of the people you're looking up who are not politicians, who cares about their political views? I don't care about some random athlete's political views. I just care whether or not he's going to help my fantasy team. you know. But yet, Wikipedia tells us it's important to know where they stand on issues. And what's interesting is where there's not a lot of material to work with, Wikipedia still finds a way to make comments about things. And so it's just this little reminder for us of how infiltrated politics is into our everyday of culture. Because we're forced to make everything political. We're forced to, to treat politics as if it really is a religion. And so here's what I want you to do for just a second. At your tables, I want you to just talk about some ways that you have seen politics become like a religion. And you don't have to share any personal things you don't want to, but you could just be, as you look at a culture and social media, what are some ways you see politics turning into a religion? Um, and I, I was just going to say, be respectful in your comments. There's not a pot, chance to pot shot the opposite political party you may hold. But uh, just talk with that for a second at your tables, and we'll get some answers and continue on. Uh, let's go ahead and get some answers. So ra raise your hand, uh, give us your name, and tell us, what are some ways you've seen politics become like a religion? That is so true. I, just real quick as a uh, aside on that, um, I have the unfortunate responsibility of fielding a lot of the political questions that come into PV's like question email address, and I cannot tell you how many people that don't go to this church, have never stepped foot in this church, will email us asking our particular view of a certain political issue that has nothing to do with the gospel. It is like this kind of very minute thing, and yet depending on how we answered. So we've had to figure out how do we engage in a Christ-like way, and sometimes maybe there's a little sass, it's a little less Christ-like, but <laughs> it, uh, seriously, I mean, it, like you said, it, it's a real thing. So on that point, if I were to just tell you, I, you know, I could make up a political belief that's mainstream and just tell you I believe that. And if you were honest, you would probably have about t nine or ten different internal sudden judgments you would make about me, whatever political belief I said it was, because it's that severe right now. Um, I mean, I, I do it too. I, I, I hear people uh, talking about liking a particular politician or something like that, and without even realizing I've made about ten different judgments about them in my mind that may or may not be true. Um, so Nick's exactly right. Um, but for, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll keep on going. But I... I think it's all clear. Politics really has become like a re really like a religion in our day and age, and it's it's so interesting for how that particularly results itself in America. Um, I'm someone I listen to several kind of international podcasts where the hosts are not American, and it's so fascinating because especially folks in the East or some folks in in parts of Europe, they will comment on certain American political issues. And when the topic gets brought up, I can feel myself tense up because I know how tense of an issue it is here. But for them, they don't really care. And sometimes they're able to say more genuine things about what's going on here because they're not worried about offending someone every five minutes. But in our culture, just any discussion of politics, we all kind of tense up a little bit. I mean, you probably did when I first brought that up this evening. I watched it in some of your faces. Um, so politics really has become like a religion. Um, Every time you hear someone say, uh, act as if this election is the most important, then the next election is the most important, the next election is the most important, that's a little reminder they're playing off a of fear that's treating politics a little bit like a religion.
It's going to happen again in a couple years. I, I, I put a bank the house on it. I put the whole farm on it. Um, 2024 presidential election will suddenly be the most important one. Same with 2028. Um, we have to be careful with how we engage in politics because if we're not careful, we get sucked in. Um, and what can happen is we can also end up using our Christian belief as a pawn for our deeper political belief. Because there are individuals who they may profess the Christian faith, they may come to church on a Sunday morning, and yet in reality, their true trust and hope is in their senators and their president and whoever their preferred political party is. And yet they'll throw out their Christian faith because it brings in a few more people and gets a few more votes. Our Christian faith can be co-opted for the religion and politics as well. Um, I can't, if I could just be frank, and I may have to cut this from the recording, but as a pastor, I could tell you of 30 or 40 individuals on both sides of the political spectrum who would say they're Christ followers, but have not gotten out of bed in time to make it to church on a Sunday morning in two or three years, yet they would fly to other states to go to political rallies. Okay, that is politics as religion. That is not Christianity. This is serious stuff, and we see this far more than we would like to admit. Another way we see this is when, for example, we have more affinity with someone who votes the same way as us but is not a believer than a believer who votes a different way than us. Which, in eternity, would make no sense. That will seem like the most foolish thing in the world for us to feel more at home with someone who votes like us but doesn't believe like us. Because in eternity, it is the blood of Jesus that brings us together. Um, and what, what's funny about that is our political persuasion, if you were to look at the way even just different political parties have changed over the last six to eight years, there are people that you would have felt a lot of affinity with eight years ago that you may not feel any affinity with now. It's always changing. Blood of Jesus doesn't change. We should have more affinity with Christians than those who just vote like us. Notice that in our passage, Peter says, not just honor everyone, he says that, but then he says, love the brothers and sisters. He means the brothers and sisters in Christ. You have more in common with someone that is a Christian, but is a different race than you, a different gender than you, votes a different way than you, than you would if you had an unbelieving identical twin. And we need to start to understand that as Christians. Our true allegiance is not with a political party, it is with an eternal kingdom, not a temporary one like the worldly kingdoms of this earth. In the end, the nations of the world will pass away and they will be judged. No matter how great you might think America is at this moment, or it has been in any moment, it will not last. Jesus will judge the United States just like he will judge all the rest of the nations of the world. Revelation 19, 15 to 16 says this, From his mouth, that's Christ, comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We serve an eternal kingdom, an eternal king. So yes, we submit to the authorities now. Yes, we engage in politics. Don't hear any of this as just saying, you know what, just hands off, don't ever vote, don't ever engage in politics. I'm not saying that. Anyone knows, who knows me knows I'm not saying that. I, I started a political philosophy society in college. I, I, I love 
just talk about this stuff. But we have to know what the most important things are. Keep the main things the main things. You, you should feel more at home when you are in a worship service with Christians. So on a Sunday morning, for example, you come in. Um, people are all over the political spectrum here. Um, Nick would affirm that. Jane, Jane, any of us you know, that have been here for a while would affirm that. Um, we should feel more at home there than we should at, at the, you know, the, the national convention of a certain political party. Um, where we may be sitting between some unbelievers. So, yes, what I would say is there are certain issues, yes, that are divisive, and we as brothers and sisters need to be able to talk those through, but we talk it through with the understanding that we are bonded by something bigger than just the issue at hand. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, yeah, we, we as Christians have to understand when we are falling into political idolatry versus meaningful engagement in politics. Go out and vote. It, it is okay to be. I'm not saying you can't be a politician. I'm not saying you can't engage deeply. Do that. Um, we can make a huge difference in the world if we would do that. But don't put all your hope there. And in the next couple of years, we're going to see a million opportunities where people are going to put more of their hope in politicians and a government that we know is going to get overturned in the next four years anyways. I mean, it just seems like it just flip-flops party to party at this point in America. It's like the parliamentary system and in Europe, um, don't put all your hope there. So what we need to have courage as Christians, and that's going to mean that we as Christians are going to hold to certain beliefs that are not going to be in step with the mainstream culture. And so we need to be prepared as we engage with politics or just engage in the world in general that we are going to get pushback from a world that makes politics as a religion. Because if you think about it, if we're uttering in, in the world's mind what is heresy, because we might, for example, might affirm the sanctity of life, or we might affirm that God is the supreme ruler overall, we might affirm several different things, we need to be prepared for people to react in a very stern way. Because in a sense, we have just put our fingers on the heart of their religion. In the same way, if someone came up in your face and started bad-mouthing God, you'd feel a little tension. Well, in some ways, even if we don't mean to, we end up kind of doing that to people when we disagree with them because our culture has no idea how to disagree. So we have to be prepared for scoffs and for stern treatment. And as I was on vacation last week, I read this quote from an old Puritan named Thomas Watson. And he says, how will he endure the stake who cannot bear a scoff? Think about that. How will he endure the stake cannot bear a scoff. And I, as I was thinking about that in just in, in context in relation to our passage for this week, um, this, this kind of train of thought came to mind. If you think about it, in broad brushstrokes, much of the American political discourse has turned into nothing more than like a playground of insults and name-calling that often are below the level of, of little kids. And if you're not convinced... Just think about the way two U.S. governors have, uh, have handled debates about immigration. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can be blissfully unaware. That's awesome. We can think of 100 more examples from the last six years of the ways that politicians and just folks in general will throw out insults and things that are just dehumanizing. Sure. Examples are legion. Christians are by no means exempt from this behavior, and many times we can be the worst culprits. 
It is as if we are surprised when we aren't liked or appreciated or praised in political spaces. And so we descend into the very same name-calling and insults ourselves. And yet, 1 Peter 2.12 has a very different outlook about how we should engage. It says this, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. That passage is telling us that we should expect to be unappreciated by non-believers because of our different views. And notice, it says that when they slander you, not if they slander you, but when they slander you, some of the context here that's going on in our First Peter passage is some of the persecution that they're facing is slander. And Peter says that explicitly here. So they're not being burned at the stake at this point yet. Nero's uh, great revolt has not happened, but much of the persecution they're facing is slander. We can relate to that at some level. But here's the kicker. First Peter 2 explicitly says that rather than jumping into the muck of name-calling and insults, we should live with such kindness and integrity and holiness that when people disagree with us, they see our good works and give glory to God. It is no wonder that people are repulsed by Christianity when they watch the ways that Christians engage in politics. The biggest way we lose our witness right now is when we have terrible political engagement. Because one of the first questions, I've had someone ask me this to my face about Christians to say, do you all really trust God or do you just trust the Republican Party? That was a real question. I've received that more than once. The Republican Party. Well, I wanted to, but it was during the 2020 election, and so I couldn't really. I just had to cry, you know? Um, and th- th- there are plenty of Christians that would do the same on the left as well. So this is, don't, don't take this as, as only elbowing one way. But we can put our hope in worldly things and not the Lord, and we end up engaging in ways that actually hurt our gospel witness. We are called to be different. Remember, Peter says this just a few verses prior, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you can be, you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And even before that, Peter tells Christians to rid themselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all, uh, all envy, and all slander in 1 Peter 2.1. And ironically, all of the things that Peter tells Christians not to do are the very things that often Christians do. Instead of engaging with kindness and humility and respect, we end up engaging with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. This is serious stuff. It's one thing to, to kind of debate some gray issues about Scripture, but when we just directly uh, contradict it, a different, it's a different matter. The devastating irony of all of this is that people who have uh, no idea that when they are repulsed by Christianity, when unbelievers are repulsed by Christianity, by the way that Christians are acting, they're not actually rejecting Jesus, but they think they are. I, I have family members, extended family members, who grew up in eras where cultural Christianity was kind of a, a big thing. 
And so there were people that went to church but didn't actually believe, and they would do deeply unchristian things. And she got to this place of saying, well, does anybody actually believe this stuff? And to this day, she does not believe. She and I have had dozens and dozens of conversations, and for her, she saw so much hypocrisy that it turned her off forever. And what we have been trying to show her for years is, what you're rejecting is not Jesus. It's his followers behaving badly. We should not let our political engagement drive away our gospel witness. That doesn't mean we don't take stands on issues. I'm not saying that. But we need to be doing all of this with, with such kindness and integrity and respect that even when people slander us or, or disagree with us, it ends up glorifying God. And we could all probably picture individuals in our life who, it's like they're so nice, you can't even like say anything bad about them. You know, we can all picture that person. It's like there's a different kind of joy and resilience in them. That's the kind of people we should be. We should not give people reason to, to, to disagree with us or, or to mistreat us. Um, but besides just holding to fundamental biblical beliefs. Jesus gives us an incredible example about how to engage with a world that often rejects him. And you just think about his story. I mean, he experienced so much persecution, far more than you and I will ever face. And yet he lived with integrity. He lived with kindness. He lived with compassion. He perfectly lived out Peter's words. He so loved those who hated him that he would even give his own life for them. Think about that. That is what love looks like. And this love and kindness against those who disagree with them all redounded to God's glory. Listen to Philippians 2, 5-11, as it describes this. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking up the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so catch this, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even when those people slandered him, they nailed him to a tree, Jesus responded with kindness and compassion and integrity, and it all redounded to God's glory. There is this old hymn, probably most of you have never heard it, but there's a few in this room that, that might recognize it, called, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Um, and it is this epic tune. If you go look it up on Spotify, look up the Cambridge Choir version, it's awesome. Um, but the, it, it paints the picture of this scene beautifully. It says this, Lo, He, this is Jesus, Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. So it's this idea first of Jesus returning. The world is seeing who he is. Christians are rejoicing in Jesus. And then here's the next part. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at not and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. 
What that hymn is trying to get at is this image. When Jesus returns, every single person that has ever existed, will ever exist, will understand that Jesus is exactly who he says he was. And it's this image of Christ returning. And I almost imagine the folks that nailed him to the tree saying, Oh, what have we done? It will all redound to God's glory. It will all be worth it. Jesus' compassion and integrity and resilience was all worth it. We have to live with that kind of compassion and kindness and integrity as we engage in the world today. That's what Peter is commanding us to do. So here's what I want us to do. We're going we're to take a moment for some table talk, and we're going to talk about this question. What are some ways that you can live more like Christ amidst the unbelieving world around you? What are some ways that you can live more like Christ amidst the unbelieving world around you? Specifically, how can you be more kind, have more integrity, have more compassion amidst the unbelieving world around you? Talk with at your tables. We'll get some answers, and then we will close out the message. That's right. Well, I think one thing, um, Nick loves this term, I do too. There, there's something you can call... It's a little, little bit of a big word called theological triage. All that means is we have to understand what is a primary issue and what is not. And right now, our political spectrum just works on two speeds. It's either the most important or it's not important at all. And that's not true. That There are so many issues that are in between. And when it comes to including our Christian faith, that is absolutely at the core. We can't treat political issues as if they are gospel issues in the same way. And like Santa said, they're going to be... Right now in this room, none of us would have perfect agreement probably with one another on every issue. And yet we can worship together. That's okay. We should. We all have agreement that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's at the core of everything. So, any maybe one more answer. That's good. I'll just share one. Just you know, this is a confession really of mine. Because even as I was preparing this message, if you were to look at my my own journal, and if you could somehow read my chicken scratch. Um, the question I've asked myself all week is, it's easy because I'm passionate about things like this. You know me at all. This is an issue I'm very passionate about. It's easy for me to point fingers at other people. And I, I've, had, I've been very convicted this week about just deep down in my heart, individuals in the church who I, I would maybe argue go too far, but yet in my heart I am not treating them with the love and respect and kindness I should. Even if, even if to their face I treat them well, I may have thoughts of them that are not righteous. I've been super convinced of that. So that, that for me would be a, a huge way, is I need to change the way I think and reform and redeem my mind, like Romans says. Um, I think one of the clearest ways we could see Peter's words lived out, of what it looks like to live with kindness and integrity and resilience amidst slander, um, comes from the example of a little six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges. Um, this is an incredibly powerful story. Uh, Ruby was a six-year-old uh, little black girl in the Deep South uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and at that time, if you know anything about kind of history at the time, Brown v. Board of Education uh, declares that segregated schools are wrong. And so schools are being asked to uh, integrate. And yet there were a number of places in the South particularly that resisted that. And so, for example, where Ruby was at in uh, New Orleans, they created this really intense testing system. Basically meant to say, okay, yeah, we can segregate, but you have to pass this rigorous test, and they knew almost no one would, would pass. 
So it'd make it hard for people to be able to actually get into white schools. And um, finally, there's a judge that, that continues to push back on this. And so in 1960, the judge puts this court order out and says, no, by uh, November 14th, you have to, to integrate. And uh, so that they start this process, and Ruby Bridges was the one person of color that stepped into her school that day. New school. She'd been to a segregated school in kindergarten. She's six years old. And when she does this, mayhem breaks loose. Um, as soon as Bridges enters the school, uh, white parents pull their children out. All the teachers except for one refuse to teach while black child is enrolled. Only one person agreed to teach Bridges, and that was Barbara Henry from Boston, Massachusetts. And for over a year, Henry taught Bridges alone. So Bridges was basically, it was like she was an entire class of her own. It wasn't just Ruby that suffered. It was her whole family that suffered for this decision. Uh, father loses his job at a gas station. The grocery store the family shopped at wouldn't let them go there any longer. And her grandparents, who were sharecroppers in Mississippi, lost access to their land. The whole family is impacted by this. Deep injustice. I mean, I can't even imagine what the, what the tension must have been like at that. And you guys have probably seen pictures where there are, you know, I mean, hundreds of people lining the sidewalks as, as Ruby is walking in with the, the, the U.S. Marshals. I mean, it, it is just crazy. And as Bridges describes it, she says, driving up, I could see the crowd. But living in New Orleans, I actually thought it was Mardi Gras first. There was a large crowd of people outside the school, and they were showing, uh, they were throwing things and shouting, and that sort of goes on in New Orleans and Mardi Gras. And uh, then this former U.S. Uh, Deputy Marshal later recalls that Ruby showed a ton of courage. She never cried. She didn't whimper. She just marched along like a little soldier, and we're all really proud of her. That's pretty amazing, because every single morning, as Bridges would walk into the school, there was a woman who would threaten to poison her, while another held up a little black baby doll in a coffin. Think about that. Six-year-old, and you're witnessing that. And it got so intense that President Eisenhower actually had to command the U.S. Marshals to guard her, to walk her in, and then to only allow her to eat the lunch food she had made at home, lest someone snuck poison into something she was going to eat at the school. This is a six-year-old girl that's living through all this. Six years old. And as kind of the media firestorm happens with this, there is a prominent psychiatrist named Robert Cole. And he wanted to see how all this was affecting Ruby. And so he begins to meet with her and just figure out, okay, this has to be having some impact on your little mind and soul. What is going on? And one day, as Cole is watching her enter the building, he, he, he sees her, it looks like she's talking. But he can't figure out who she's talking to. And so you know, she gets in the building, and then at their meeting, he says, Ruby, who, who were you talking to this morning? Were you talking to the crowd? And uh, she said, no, 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 I wasn't talking to the crowd. I, I was talking to God. He says, oh, what were you talking to God about? And she says, I, I was praying for the crowd. And he said, do you, do you do that often? And she said, yeah. Um, I usually do it every morning before I come to school, but when I was walking in, I remembered that I had actually forgotten to pray for them. So he says, what, what were you praying to God for about the crowd? And she says, I was praying God be gracious to them because they don't know what they're doing. 
That is how you live out Peter's words. That is how you have resilience and respect amidst slander. Guys, probably none of us are going to ever experience anything just like that. I sure hope not. But we will experience elements of persecution and slander. We are, just by nature of just our cultural uh, kind of movement, it will not get easier for us as Christians unless God brings about some revival in this country. And I'm not saying that as some kind of old-timey, oh, the good old days are better. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just being honest about the, the direction culture is moving. So we have to be resilient. If we're only going to be Christians so long as we don't get jabbed every once in a while culturally, then we're not going to have any luck in the future. We have to have a resilient faith. We have to have a living hope. It is so important. And when we just step back and just take our minds off the the quote-unquote persecution we might feel here, and the pressure we might feel here, we think about the way Christians are treated in other countries. If you've been with this very long at all, you've probably heard me pray something to the effect of, God, thank you so much for the freedom for us to be able to be here. And yet, God, we thank you for the men and women who have secured that freedom for us. Now, would you be with those whose safety is in danger when they meet to worship? Would you bless their time together? There's probably leaders, 20s leaders, that could recite that prayer by memory. They've heard me say it so often. It's because we mean it. There are Christians in other countries that are facing persecution like we could never imagine, and yet there is resilience. There is kindness. There is integrity and respect because they realize that all the temporary political stuff and other things that we spend all of our time on and attention on, they don't matter compared to the eternal glory of Jesus. And so they submit to the authorities in a loving way, and yet they do so holding fast to the faith, finding ways together, finding ways to worship to one another. I will never forget being on a mission trip in Thailand, and we're going through kind of this uh, refugee camp. And I'm talking to this man, and uh, I'm talking to a translator, and he's telling me the story that his family has come from an area of Pakistan, and he's trying to find asylum in uh, Thailand, and just he talked about the persecution they faced, and he was trying to describe things, and the translator was having trouble understanding, and so finally the guy just pulls out his phone and shows me this really blurry video. And I kind of lean in and try to make sense of it, and then it hits me. What it's a video of is his cousin, who is a Christian, being beheaded by the Taliban. And of course, like, freshman in college, Caleb is like, what did I just watch? You know, I, I don't think any of the mission trip leaders at that time would have approved of that video being shown. But once it, once it hits me, I'm like, this is the kind of pressure people are living with. We have it easy. And yet, as things get more intense here, we have to learn how to be resilient. And we would have, have so much to learn from folks in other countries, Christians in other countries. And we can take so much to learn from people like Ruby Bridges. So I want to close with this. You have heard me read Romans 8 many, many times. But I think when you consider what the words of Romans 8 have to say compared to what we've talked about tonight... I think it might hit you in a different light. So I want to close by reading this, and then we will pray and sing our final song of worship. So consider Romans 8 in comparison to everything we've talked about. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Quick pause. That's the same kind of point Peter is making when he says, you are a royal priest of a chosen nature, a chosen nation, God's own people. Same point. Now, what does he have to say about the hope we have? Same message that Peter's going to have. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the resilient and living hope we have in Jesus. That we pray that you would help us put our hope in him, not in a political party, not in a politician, not, not in a particular political movement. God, would you help us engage in the world with love and kindness and dignity and respect so that even when we may be slandered, it would redound to your glory. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are thankful for the example he sets for us for how to engage in a world that rejects their Savior. God, would you help us live in light of his life? God, would you help us live according to Peter's words and hold fast to our living hope? Thank you that nothing, whether persecution or danger or famine or sword or anything, could separate us from Jesus' life. Would you help us live with that confidence as we walk forward and engage in this world? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.